23. Probably the most recognizable of the psalms. Uh, and many of us have memorized it. When Clayton was singing it, you knew the words before, you anticipated the words before he sang those songs. But one of the things I've discovered as I've gone through the psalms is that um, even the more recognizable psalms, we do not really understand them in their historical context. Many of us read this psalm, and for us it's a devotion, and it provides comfort. But what did it mean when David put it down on paper? So that's what we're going to try to look at and see what does it mean in its historical context, and then you can apply it to your own life. Uh, look at the superscription in the psalm. It's just called a psalm of David. Pretty simple. Uh, it's a psalm written by David, uh, which describes his relationship and his life that he lived in relationship with God and the life that he lived for God. And this psalm can be divided into two sections. And here's how we're going to divide it. Some of your Bibles even have a little space between verses 4 and 5, and that's where the division is going to take place. Section 1 is verses 1 through 4, and here David describes God as a shepherd. Now, up until this time, David has spoken of God as a king, but now he switches gears and he describes God as a shepherd king. And most likely, David reflects back on his own life as a shepherd. And now he's going to apply that same imagery to God. And just as David cared for his sheep, he's going to tell us how God takes care of his people. So I see David sort of drawing from his own personal experience and applying that title to God. And uh, the second section begins in verse 5, and it's verses 5 and 6. And here he describes God as a hospitable host. Uh, a host is someone who puts on a banquet and invites people to sit down at his banqueting table. And he's going to do that. Now, when he uses the terms shepherd and host, he's using metaphors. Those are figures of speech. He doesn't mean that God is literally a shepherd. He doesn't mean that God's literally a host. He means God's like a shepherd, and God's like a host, and he's going to tell us in what ways God is like a shepherd and a host. That he serves us. Can you imagine a king serving with something? Never worked out, does it? But he wants to let you know that God's a different kind of a king. He's a shepherd king. He's a king in reverse. He's a king who serves the subjects. And he cares for his people. And he loves his people. We'll go to any extent to meet all of their needs. So with that background, let's look at section number one, the section of God being a shepherd. Notice how the verse one opens. It says, the Lord is a shepherd. I shall not want. Is that what it says? doesn't say that at all. He says, because the Lord can be a shepherd without being your shepherd, can he? But here's what he says. The Lord is my shepherd. And when he talks about the Lord being his shepherd, he's referring to a relationship. Uh, David has a relationship with God. Now, if he depicts God in metaphorical language as being a shepherd, what would that make David? That would make David his sheep. And the sheep is one who depends upon the shepherd. So when he says that God is my shepherd, that's what he's saying. Now, look what else he says. He says, I shall not want. Now, I think that you could put the word therefore after the word shepherd. It goes something like this. The Lord is my shepherd. 
Therefore, I shall not want. Or you can put it this way. Since the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I, or I shall not want because the Lord is my shepherd. That's the meaning of this text. He wants us to get that. So it speaks, number one, of David's frailty. Without a shepherd, sheep scatter and they are in danger. David's frailty. And second of all, the word shepherd speaks of God's ability to take care of the sheep. Now, here's one way you could not read the verse. You can never read the verse like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall walk. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall walk. That would be an oxymoron, wouldn't it? If the Lord is your shepherd, guess what? You shall not want. Now, there are many Christians who call God their shepherd, but guess what? There's a lot of want. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of lack. So you need to say, maybe for you, the Lord is a shepherd, but not your shepherd, and therefore you lack, or you want. But if the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That makes pretty good sense, doesn't it? Now here's what he says. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, or uh, grassy meadows, or rich meadows, okay, rich fields. Now, what I want you to notice, in verse 1, it has the Lord is. Verse 1 is what God is. Verse 2, 3 and 4, are what God does. Verse 1, what God is. Verse 2, what God does. I want you to notice the verbs there. He makes me. You see that? There are four verbs. Each verbs, each one of these verbs describe what God does. So the first thing God does is... He makes provisions for us. For a sheep, it is to lead them to green pastures where they can eat. So, this is what you need to understand. Uh, I've never met a sheep. Last sheep I talked to when I asked him this question. They never said, well, I'll worry where I'm going to get my food tomorrow. Uh, that's the shepherd's work. So, the first thing God does is he make, takes care of our needs. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now look at the second verb. He drives me like a cattle czar. He leads me beside what kind of water? Still waters. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's waters of rest. Calm waters. Sheep are frightened creatures. And there's something very interesting if you, if you take them to a stream that's moving quickly, they will not drink out of that stream. They're frightened. Noise frightens sheep. So what God does, he brings them into an environment where they can relax, and they can take a drink, and they can eat without fear. That's a pastoral setting there. Green pastures and still waters. You can, you can see that picture in your mind, can't you? That's where I want to live. I want to live in that house with those beautiful green, and a green meadow, now, this is my, this is my, uh, who's that guy that writes, does, draws all the pictures with the light? This is my Kincaid picture where I want to live. I want to live in one of those kind of houses <laughs> in that green meadow with these calm water. And so, uh, here God stills the sheep by taking them to still water. 
And God wants us to relax. He wants us to be calm. And not always frightened. Look at the third verse. Verse 3. He restores my soul. Literally, not soul. David didn't have this concept of an invisible soul. Hebrews, Jewish people didn't think in that way like we do. Uh, when we talked about soul, it just meant my life. So a better translation would be, he restores or he revives or he renews or he gives back my life to me. So when you see the word soul, oftentimes in the Old Testament, it simply means your life. Twenty-five souls perished in the fire. Twenty-five souls is only how about their body? What does it mean when it says twenty-five souls? Twenty-five people. So he's talking about basically his life here. Uh, he restores my life to me. He heals my body. He uh, he nourishes me back to life. Is what he said. And that's certainly one of the jobs of a shepherd. A shepherd who had to had to birth the, the lambs and the sheep together. Take care of them, feed them, he restored them back to life. And that's what this means, restores my soul. Now look at the fourth verse right there. In verse 3. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Now this harkens us back to Psalm 1. Remember I told you Psalm 1 is the basis for many of these uh, early psalms. And remember in Psalm 1 it says, Blessed is a man that uh, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor uh, standeth in the paths of sinners. What kind of paths? Paths of sinners. Blessed is the man that doesn't stand in the paths of sinners. What kind of a path does he stand in? Well, here it is. Look what it says in the verse 3. He leads me in what kind of paths? Paths of righteousness. Uh, notice God's leading. God's setting the pace. The way God set the pace for David was he gave the law to his people. And he said, this is the rule that will guide you. And so God leads us. He puts a law, a moral code out front. And he shows us how we are to, to live. And then there's a little modifying phrase at the end of verse 3. He does this for a reason. Look at this. For his name's sake. Uh, that means uh, he does it to uphold his name. He wants to protect his reputation. When you stand in the counsel of the ungodly and you walk in the paths of sinners, guess what you do to God's name? You besmirch his name. You drag his name through the mud. How many Christians do we know that take the name of Christ and have drugged that name through the mud because they haven't followed that path of righteousness that law, that moral ethic which Jesus has given us and we follow that, instead of doing that, what we do is we research his reputation. Now look at verse 4. Yes. In light of all the gods as a shepherd. Yay! Because God's a shepherd. That's what he is. And the things that he does. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I'm going to spend just a minute or two on this verse. Because I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice, if you've been with us, if you notice these things, notice the change in the pronouns. See the change in the pronouns? Verses 1 through 3 speaks of he. He makes. He leads. He restores. See? He leads. But then in verse 4, 
It's, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for what? You are with me. Thou are with me. He changes it. In verses 1 through 3, uh, he speaks about God. In 1 through 3, he speaks about God. He leads. He restores. He does that. But in verse 4, he speaks to God. No, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil because you are with me. So now he directly speaks to God. Talks to God. Pastor today, message was on prayer. Talking to God. A lot of people talk about God. This is talking to God. Now, if I ask you in verse 4, what's the main point of all that verse? And here's the verse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For thou art with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If I ask you what the main gist, if you could distill this verse into one sentence, what's the main point? So this is what I would ask my classes in my exposition class when I'm teaching them how to take a text, exegete it, and then deliver it to an audience. If that was the text you were going to deliver, what would be your main point? Now watch, here it is. I will fear no evil. That's the main point of verse 4. Everything surrounding it modifies that point. It is, uh, it explains that point. For example, uh, I'll fear no evil. When will I fear no evil? Well, here it is. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. See how I will fear no evil is the main point. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death simply uh, explains the point. Why will I not fear any evil? Look what he says. For you are with me. See? All that points back to that one sentence. I will fear no evil. That means evil is present. Evil is present. But David will not fear the evil. Now, when is evil present, and when will he not fear the evil? Now, watch what it says in the beginning of verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, that phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, I'm convinced, is one of the most misunderstood phrases in the entire Bible. It's like uh, the one, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and comes in, I will come in and I'll sup with him, him with me. And we use that as a salvation verse. Doesn't mean that at all. Or where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And we say, well, we have a small meeting tonight, but where two or three are gathered, God's here. Has nothing to do with that. This is one of those kinds of verses. What does it mean? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the this? valley of the shadow of death. I'm going to tell you first of all what it doesn't mean. Okay? What it doesn't mean. What is this valley of the shadow of death? First of all, the valley of the shadow of death doesn't mean the person is on their deathbed and they die and they sort of make the transition from here to there. It has nothing to do with it. So that's what you hear in sermons on funerals, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with it. It doesn't mean that shadows can't hurt you. Death is just a shadow. I want to make a confession. Can I do that? Can I 
bear my soul. I have used this verse the wrong way many times. And in funerals, I've said this. Shadows can't hurt you. See, death is just, for the Christian, death is just a shadow. And shadows can't hurt you. The shadow of a dog can't bite you. That can't hurt you. The shadow of a gun can't hurt you. And for a Christian, death is just a shadow and it's just a transition and, you know, that's what it is for a Christian. We have nothing to worry about. Amen. And then everybody in the funeral will say, Amen. Now that's what it does with me. Okay? Now I'm not saying we don't make a transition. I'm not saying any. I'm just saying that's not what the shadow of the valley is, the shadow of death means. Okay? So what, what does this mean? Now let's look at the verb. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What does the word walk mean? Well, that means walk. Okay, come on, I mean, that means walk. Yeah. That phrase, <laughs> valley of the shadow of death, comes from one single Hebrew word. And we get that whole phrase. It's used 20 times in the Old Testament. And it means a dark valley, uh, a foreboding place, a scary place. Now, if I said, what is a valley? Like I said, what does walk mean? What is a valley? Guess what? We all know what a valley is. A valley is that low spot where on either side there's what? There's a mountain. And uh, when you are for the sheep, first of all, to have the shepherd having to take a sheep through a valley where there's these hills, that's where the enemy is. That's where the lions are. That's where the wolves are. And they're just ready. They get up there and they creep. See those moving from those animals creeping hills. And they creep and they just, the sheep, maybe the last one that comes along, pounces on them. And all the other sheep are See, it's a very dangerous place. David's not talking about sheep, is Literal sheep. Or is this a metaphor? Yeah, a figure of speech. In a battle, David's always talking about battles. In a battle, you know the most dangerous place to be? It's in that valley. And you know where the best place to be is? <laughs> the high ground. If the enemy gets the high ground, you're in trouble. Because they can hide and you do not see them. And this is the picture that David has, as you will see, is the enemy that he depicts as evil and can produce his death and the death of his nation. And the enemy has this high ground and you can't see what's lurking there and it's very scary. And then suddenly, over the crest, the clouds break and the sun beams down and the shadows are cast. It's pretty scary. Especially if it's the shadow of an enemy. It's cast down there. So what David is depicting here is, uh, I believe, is a valley where the enemy has the high ground and it's very dangerous. And he sees the shadows of the enemy cast on the ground. A shadow means, look at this, a shadow of the enemy means there is an enemy. And that's dangerous. The shadow of a... If you were walking down the street at night, 
daytime or night. And there's something, someone lurking behind the corner of the building. And there's a lamp, street lamp or light, behind them. Or the moon. It doesn't matter what the light is. Or it's the daytime. It doesn't matter if it's the sun. And you're walking down there, and as you go, go toward the corner, you see a shadow with someone's arm like this, a big knife. Guess what that means? You just go, oh, just me and mine. <laughs> Danger is around that corner. Shadows, no, the shadow can't hurt you, but what cast that shadow can hurt you. So this is what David's saying, that valleys, these dark, dangerous valleys, are very scary places. But look what he says. I will what? I will fear no evil. Even in that valley. Now, this is a valley that's going to produce death. And the evil is not just the enemy, but the evil is the death. The enemy is trying to kill David. And... Uh, Death is the worst enemy, isn't it? In fact, the Bible calls death an enemy. And it's the last enemy that Jesus is going to destroy. But uh, because David's not afraid of this evil that lurks there. Uh, so whether you're talking about sheep going through a valley or soldiers, a valley is a place where you can end up being killed. Okay. So, now, the sheep, you get from point A to point B, have to go through the battle. The soldiers that go from point A to point B and win the battle have to go through the battle. They don't have any choice. So David is in a situation where he's going to go through this valley, he doesn't have any choice, and it looks like a hopeless situation, but he says, I will fear no evil. Now what's the reason? Here it is. For you are with me. Who is with me? God, who he's described as what? A shepherd. Now he's using this metaphor of sheep and shepherd. Just remember that. But he's really talking about wars and battles. He says, God, I'm like a sheep going through a valley. Now he's really a king. But I'm like a sheep going through a valley. And I'm not afraid of these wolves that are ready to hop down off the cliffs and get me. Because you are with me. Now it's interesting. In verses 2 and 3, he used the word lead two times. He leadeth me. He leadeth me. But guess what? God's not out front anymore. Guess where God is right now? Right by his side. You see that? For you are with me. Not out in front. You're with me. Right alongside. He is David's... Look, the president and kings have guards, don't they? Don't they have secret service agents? And God is David's secret service agent. In the terms of sheep, their secret service agent is the shepherd. And so God, he says, I'm not afraid because you're with me. And he says, here's why I'm not afraid. Number one, your rod. And number two, your stand. They are what comforts me. They are what makes me be, be calm and not be afraid of the evil. Now, what is the rod? Well, the rod was a short, blunt club that... Um, shepherds would keep down in their sash. And if, you know, a wild animal came along, they would pull that thing up and knock that thing over the head and kept those wild animals away from the sheep. And the staff was what guided the sheep. That's how you kept the sheep close to you. 
you go along, you have this staff, and if they got too far, you turn it over, and you got the hook around the neck. So the rod was a club that you beat off the wild animals with, and the staff was what you kept the sheep next to you. So David knows as long as God is with him, he has nothing to fear. One of our presidents said something like that. He has nothing to fear. <laughs> Speak softly, but carry that. Well, he was quoting the psalm. He didn't even realize about that. I didn't realize until I just stood up. Okay. So uh, God is armed, and God has not abandoned David. Now, it's interesting. In Psalm 22, that psalm opened up, My Lord, my Lord, why have you... But he came to his senses at the end of the psalm, and he realized God hadn't forsaken him. And this sort of follows up, and here's God right here. God's not only not forsaking him, God's protecting him, and he has this rod and this staff. And so... Uh, without God being by his side, David's a dead man. So that's section number one. So notice how, in the historical context, how the psalm starts making sense. We use it devotionally. Psalms bring us a lot of comfort, and we can. We can apply it to our lives. But what we're trying to do now is just get that historical context. Okay, section number two. God as a hospitable host. Look at verse five. Still with the second person pronoun, you prepare a table before me. That means you set a table. You lay out a spread. Now, that's the first action of a host. That's your first verb. You prepare a table before me. You lay out the spread. Now God's no longer a shepherd. He's switching metaphors. He's picturing, picturing God as a person who has a house and is laying out a banquet, and David is his honored guest. That's the relationship that you have here. Now look where this banquet is prepared. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. I think David's just picking up on that whole concept. Again, he's still dealing with what? Enemies. In section one, he was dealing with enemies. In section two, he's dealing with enemies. These are probably the enemies that have been conquered and captive and uh, but David, is, this is like a victory banquet, possibly. We don't know exactly what kind of banquet this is. And David is uh, eating a victory meal, and the enemies have been conquered, and they see that David is the one who has conquered the God's throne a big victory banquet. Or it could be that uh, this is what we call a covenant meal. David may be thinking back toward the covenant that God made with Israel. But every time God made a covenant, he told them to eat. He has them feast. You know, when he leads them out of Egypt they have to have a Passover feast. And he makes another covenant with them and they have a big meal. And Jews would express their uh, participation and relationship with God in the covenant by bringing their sacrifices to God to the temple and the priest would kill the animal, take it and their sacrifices to God and the good meat was given back to the family who brought the offering and it was cooked. And they all ate together in the presence of God. And that meal represented a covenant meal. And David may be saying, because of this covenant relationship, because of this agreement we have with each other, this relationship we have with each other, uh, this is a meal that I'm eating in your presence. He could be talking along that way. And if that's the case, this would be like a loyalty meal. The Last Supper was sort of like that. Remember, Jesus lifted the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the new one. Covenant. Remember that New Testament. 
And one day we're going to all stand and we're going to, we're going to all sit at a great messianic banquet. The banquet of the Lamb. And uh, it represents this relationship with, that we have with God. Well, this is God in a sense. Uh, preparing a banquet for David in the presence of his enemies that are looking on and David's the, the, the honored guest. And then he talks the second thing that God does in verse 5. He says, you anoint, this is the next verb, you anoint my head with oil. Uh, that's what every good guest did. Uh, when the, uh, uh, every host did. When a guest came in, the host would take this fragrant oil and, uh, and rub the person's head. It was the way you showed your guest honor and respect. Jesus uh, has a meal with the Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke. And remember the woman comes in and she anoints Jesus. And the Pharisees are all upset because she's a sinner. And Jesus said, well, let me, let me ask you, did you anoint my head with oil? He says that to the host. And I dropped his head. Because that's what the host is supposed to do. Here is a host looking upon David as the guest of honor. This is God serving again. And he anoints the the guest of honor with oil right before he eats. And then he says, my cup runs over. And uh, when the, you were the guest of honor, what the host would do, he'd come and he'd fill up your cup right up to the brim. And he would let it trip over. He'd let it spill a little bit on the table. Now, not everyone had their cup filled like that, but the guest of honor did. And what it was was a, a signal that there's a great supply of wine don't worry about. You're, you're important enough that I have an ample supply on hand. So uh, let's have a party. And this party is in your honor. Let's have a great time. So David basically sees God as this host, and God sees David as his guest of honor. Now, I want you to know something. This is how God sees you. This is how God looks upon you. He looks upon you as his sheep. He looks upon you as his guest of honor because we have entered into this covenant with God. We have this relationship with God. And many of us, unfortunately, in this room, it's just the way we were brought up. That's all. We think God's angry. But I want you to know God is not. God loves you more than you could ever know. The good shepherd, what does he do? Laying down his life. See, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate host. That's what he was at the last supper. I wonder if the guest of honor at Jesus' last supper might not have been Judas. Can you imagine that? But I want you to know, God's not angry with you. God's not out to punish you. God loves you. And you need to know that He loves you. You need to stop living with this guilt. That's the opposite of how you feel. So this weight of guilt on your shoulders. God has just wrapped His arms around you, and He loves you. And so David says, "Look at this." This is, this is the affirmation that every person in this class needs to make. Surely, bad times, <laughs> surely goodness and mercy 
shall follow me all the days of my life. And notice it doesn't say goodness and mercy might follow me. See the surety of this, the certainty of this thing? David understands God so much better than we do. Goodness and mercy, not might, shall follow me some of the days of my life. Lifelong. Lifelong. Now that word follow doesn't mean lag behind or, you know, back there in the distance trying to catch up. It's a very aggressive word. It means to pursue. Goodness pursues us. God has put goodness on our trail. And mercy is ours all the day of our life. Now, it's very interesting, isn't it? He says, goodness will follow me, will pursue me. Not hurt. This is why I think we need to get out of this concept of God being a God of judgment on Christians. We have entered into a covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God is no, not angry at us. The anger of God has been averted off of us and placed on Christ. And God now is pouring out goodness. God is a good God toward Christians. Remember poor Roberts used to say, something good is going to happen to you this day. Remember the one of his old television program? He used to laugh at that. I'm convinced that this guy said more than he understood. <laughs> that's why, that is why so many people were attracted to that. Because Oral Roberts was offering people hope when others were not. He was offering people healing. He was off saying, God's a good God. Expect a miracle. He was saying all the right things. He was saying what all Christians should be saying. And God is a good God, and goodness follows us. And uh, we need to understand that. And then he says, and mercy follows us. That's compassion. When we fall, he doesn't say, I knew it. I'm going to stamp you up. <laughs> what he does, you see, we fall, guess what he does? He does the same thing with the sheep. He does the same thing when a shepherd does when the sheep goes away. He leaves the 99. When the sheep gets in the thicket, he heals the sheep. He takes care of us. God gives us mercy. He's a merciful God. And this mercy follows us all the days of our lives. And then, then he says this. It's lifelong. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Literally, the length of my day. The entire length of my day, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Uh, another one of those verses like valley, through the valley, which is totally misunderstood. What is the house of the Lord? You say, heaven, heaven. <laughs> has nothing to do with heaven. Uh, what is, to David, what is the house of the Lord? Well, if I ask you what is the house of the Lord in the Old Testament, what would you tell me? The temple. Now, in David's time, the temple, as we think of it, was not yet built. Because Solomon built the temple. But David, God still had a house, didn't he? It was a tabernacle. And if you look at the context, you just move over, for example, uh, two, three chapters. Look at uh, Psalm 27. Yeah, you get to you tell he, he identifies what this house is. And uh, this phrase is used three or four or five times in the book of Psalms. So in Psalm 27, Seven, for example. Uh, 
See if this doesn't sound a little bit like Psalm 23. Though an army encamp me, hey, there you are, they're up on that hill, they're ready to jump on you. Uh, my heart shall not what? Fear. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, right? Look. Though war may rise against me, and this I shall be confident, one thing I have desired, that I will see, that I will what? Dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's what the word forever means. To behold the beauty and inquire in his temple. And this just means where he lives. And in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. So that's what David's talking about. So when you go back to Psalm 23, when he says, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he means I shall make the tabernacle, the courts of God's house, my abode all the days of my life. David loved the tabernacle. They would love to be in those courts. Uh, why wouldn't he? Wouldn't you want to stay close to God? That was where God lived. Hey, if God takes care of you like a shepherd, and God takes care of you like a host, you want to stay as close to God as you can. And that's what David says. The goal of my life, to put it in this present vernacular character, is that stay as close to God. So that's the message that David has in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the main point. I will not want. In first section one, the main point is I have no want. The main point of section two, basically, is, or verse four is, I will fear no evil. And in the end, he says, I will dwell with God all the days. We'll pick up at some point for next week. Father, I thank you for your word. We so often miss a text that has been so important to us and has ministered to us over the years because we don't understand the background. Help us to see how rich these passages are and how deep they are and how much more they can minister to us when we see their true significance. Lord, we have nothing to fear. You love us. You are a God of goodness, and you are forgiving compassion. We thank you, Lord. Help us to serve you and stay close to you. In Christ's name we pray.